continue worship with the scripture reading for today's message. We will be reading from Luke 17, 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mary. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Scott on staff here at Riverstone. It's my privilege to be able to bring the word this morning. I'm glad that you're here. It's good to see you. Uh, this is uh, an, an interesting week. It's the beginning of the Thanksgiving season or the Thanksgiving week, and really the holiday season kind of launches today. And um, Thanksgiving was always one of my favorite holidays growing up as a, as a little boy because it was one of the days um, and times of the year that things would really kind of slow down a little bit, and there wasn't as much going on. I mean, I, I got to admit, um, yep, welcome to Mayberry. Um, I'm that old. So, you know, you can just call me Opie if you want to. But uh, it, was, it was a good time back in, in that day. It was pretty traditional. The family would gather. Great meals would be prepared. The house would smell great. You know, you remember smelling that favorite dish being cooked. Relatives would come over, particularly my cousins would come over. And we would gather around the table. We would actually take a few minutes to express what we were thankful for. And uh, it was fun. It was fun. Then we would carve a big turkey and stuff ourselves, you know, just kind of the way it went. Uh, back in this day, and this is going to really date myself, there really wasn't a lot of football on TV. And uh, the football took place out in the front yard. And so we'd go out and we'd play flag football or touch football, and it was a lot of fun. Come back in later and carve up a little bit of pumpkin pie, sit in front of the fireplace, you know, just kind of chill a little bit. But it didn't end there because the next day, my dad would take the boys out into the woods, and we would go on an adventure. We'd go out and hike and, and target practice. And I realized later that the reason, he, really reason he was doing that was to get us out of the house so mom could rest and recover from Thanksgiving. But, uh, but it was a good time. And it didn't end then. Saturday and Sunday kind of just carried over into a holiday feel. Uh, it was like a four-day vacation, in a sense. And, and the Christmas, or the Sunday after Thanksgiving, always began Christmas music in church. And I always look forward to that. So welcome to Mayberry. You know, in my Mayberry mind, uh, that was a great time. I realized that it's not that way for everybody, though. Holidays are not the greatest season for some people. People who've experienced loss or disruption in their life or brokenness, um, the holidays can be a season of sadness and loneliness, and they dread the approach of it and then just can't wait until it's over and some type of normalcy can, can return. But, but an interesting thing here in America is that the holidays seem to be changing a little bit. I read an article the other day that was called Thanksgiving, the Disappearing Holiday. And the point of the article 
was simply to say that what used to be a time when people would actually kind of hit the pause button and gather and cook together and eat together is slowly eroding and it's disappearing. Uh, and better yet, it's just being swallowed up by other things. And uh, we, we kind of see that trend. Um, one of the things that they noted on the erosion of the day is that it's being overshadowed by Black Friday. Now, I don't know about you, but Black Friday used to be the Friday after Thanksgiving. I started getting Black Friday email offers in October. And I got some this morning going, it's Black Friday. And I said, no, not quite. Not, not quite there yet. But since about 2005, Black Friday has been the most profitable day for retailers. And it got its name because it was the time that in their ledger books, they went from red uh, being and with a deficit into being black, being a profit. So it was a good thing. It was a good thing for the, for the retailers. Um, and a few years ago, uh, Thanksgiving, which used to be a day when everything was off, except for the 7-Eleven, uh, the QT, um, it began to open up some of the retailers. And uh, it, the long pitch for Christmas sales would start and kind of launch there. But my, my point today, though, is not to drift into some kind of sentimental Americana over one day called Thanksgiving that seems to be disappearing, or at least maybe less important in our culture, but to ask a very important question. And the, this is the big question. Is gratitude itself disappearing? You know, I'm not so much concerned about one day, but is the practice of gratitude, of being a grateful people, is that disappearing? And, uh, you know, it's something we have to kind of wrestle with and ask ourselves. The disappearing holiday, I think, is just an indicator of a loss of that attribute of being able to pause and reflect and humble ourselves, kind of park our egos and our activities and mindfully be aware of the many, many ways and many different levels that God has blessed our lives. In the Old Testament, when God was blessing the people of Israel and leading them into the promised land, a land that he had prepared for them, he cautioned them. He cautioned them as he gave them this, this land of a tendency of the human heart. And I'm going to read it. It's out of Deuteronomy. You go back in the Old Testament, and this is, this is what he said to them. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I'm commanding you this day, because he was giving them instruction. Lest when you've, you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and you live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, then all that you have is multiplied, then your heart would be lifted up, kind of with pride, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Even then, we begin to see the indicator that one of the default things that take place in the heart of a human being is to drift away from gratitude and just to be looking at the next thing that's coming along, quickly forget the blessings that we've been given. So one of the things that God did back in the Old Testament day was to begin to establish some uh, festivals some feasts, some holy days, that the people would stop their activity, they would kind of just pull aside, and they would spend some time reflecting upon what God had done in their life and the different things that the Lord had done to, to bless them. And they would sometimes do it for a few days, sometimes for maybe up to a week. And the purpose of these, these festivals or feasts was to realign their heart with God just to kind of stop from all the other activity and be aware of the fact that, you know what, we're here because God has blessed us. And he's our God and, and we're his people. And so we want to humble ourselves and bring our hearts and our lives back to him 
and realign our hearts to him and realize that that we're here because he has taken care of us, not just in physical ways, but in spiritual matters, and to be grateful for those things. But over time, what happened is that the people of Israel began to drift away from the meaning. Uh, These festivals became empty. They would focus more on the event than on the purpose of the event. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just a little bit. And what happened uh, there is kind of what happens with us today, with Christmas, with Easter, with different holidays, is that it easily gets unhinged from the true meaning. And it becomes a diluted holiday that just it basically, I mean, some of you are already thinking this, uh, it, we end up exhausted, we end up in debt, and just burned out. And that's clearly not God's intention for Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or any of the holy, holy days that he gave. A few uh, days ago, I was reading in the book of um, Amos over in the Old Testament on the prophets, and I came across a passage that I've seen before. And do you ever come across these passages that when you read them, it just makes you a little uncomfortable? You know, particularly in the Old Testament, it seems like there's a lot of them. And, and I remember reading this and being somewhat shocked by it and a little bit uncomfortable. And it's where God basically, and I'll read it in a minute, but what he's basically telling the people is, you know these feasts and festivals? I really hate these things. And I was like, What? You know, wait a minute, what's going on here? And and this is the way that that Amos wrote it down. God said, I hate, I despise the religious festivals, your assemblies. They're a stench to me. They stink. They smell. Yeah, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I, I will not accept them. And though you bring me the choice offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with all this noise of your songs. In other words, this is just noise now. It's lost its meaning. It's lost its purpose. When I read that, I went, Wow. God, you're the one who started these. You're the one who came up with the idea, and now you can't even stand them anymore. Why? Why is that? And it's because, very simply, they would go through the motions. They would focus on the event, but their hearts were far away from the purpose and far away from the Lord. They had drifted. And the other, the other thing is that their lifestyles simply did not match up to being a people of God. They're basically doing their own thing, living their own way, and not acting like God's people. And he says, you're just going through the motions, and I don't even like these anymore. Don't think I'll show up at the next one. You know, just we'll skip that party. Now, the purpose of these days had been to spend time with God, to peel back the layers of a busy life, and to be aware of the fact God is our God. We are his people, and he loves us. And he has a desired life for us. And he's called for us to slow down and pause and remember who he is and what he has done and to integrate that into all the different parts of our life. So I say all that to say that if you find yourself sometimes not liking the holidays, you're in good company (laughs) because the Lord doesn't like it either, doesn't enjoy it when it departs from the true purpose, the simplicity of a life with him. As we move into the holiday season and into Advent beginning next, next Sunday, I want to encourage and challenge you to, to just slow down your heart, your mind, and to think about the purpose of these days, to think about the purpose of, of Jesus coming into the world and bringing light into our life and focus upon those things and don't let the busyness of life steal um, the, real, the real roots of what is taking place and what God's calling us to remember. More important than keeping a national holiday about Thanksgiving is keeping our hearts humble 
and grateful to him. So the question is this, why do we drift from a mindset of being grateful? Why do we just, why do we have that tendency to do that? And how can we keep gratitude from disappearing in our lives? How can we develop a lifestyle of being grateful? Which brings me to the passage that Mary read for us just a moment ago. It has a lot to say about this topic. And so what I want us to do for the next few moments is to sit with this passage. In fact, what I, what I really want to encourage you to do is participate with the passage to live it, to go back in your mind the best we can if we could jump in a time machine and just transport ourselves back. And let's watch it. Let's observe it. Let's see what's taking place. Let's watch Jesus walk into the scene. Let's look at these, these 10 men and their lives and what they're going through. And let's experience this. Now, let me ask you this question, not for you to answer out loud, but just to think about. When Mary read this a few moments ago from Luke chapter 17, what stood out to you the most? What's the point that kind of like, whoa, 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 what is this? What's going on? I, I know for me that my initial response to this passage has always been the nine ungrateful lepers. And because my, you know, I go, what's the deal with these jerks? I mean, what's going on with them? How could they do this? Even Jesus asked, wait a minute, weren't there 10 guys here a moment ago? Where are the other nine at? Even Jesus seems somewhat surprised by that. And, and I'm, I, I mean, I, I, are you offended by that? Does it kind of just stand back and, whoa, wait a minute, what's the deal with these guys? How could these men actually meet Jesus himself and have Jesus himself heal them miraculously and then just cut and run and not at least come back and say, thank you, Jesus, for doing that? You look at the statistics of this, 90% can't even stop to say thank you. Only 10%, just one guy. And I, I look at that and I go, is that characteristic of our hearts? I mean, could that be a deeper message that? When I read this passage, and remember, this is not a parable. Okay, this is not Jesus saying, I'm going to make a story up and tell you guys, you know, this little narrative. This is an event of life. This happened. This was observed. This was real life kind of thing taking place. And when I read this passage recently and began to jump into my automatic, uh, what's the deal with these guys? You know, a little bit of self-righteousness. You know, the Holy Spirit just seemed to whisper to me and say, hey, not so fast. You ever have that happen? Not so fast. If you're honest, Scott, you may find that sometimes you are just like the nine. Could it be that sometimes you're just like them? Oh, that's awkward in quiet time. <laughs> it's a little bit uncomfortable. But I think that that's exactly why the Lord chose to include stories like this into the Holy Scriptures. So that as we read them and sit with them, it helps us check our heart and see what's going on inside. So let's, this is a bad way of putting this, but let's get into the skin of these guys, okay? They're lepers. Let's get into their lives for a minute and walk with them and imagine what it would be like to, to be one of the 10, one of these 10 lepers. So as we get into the story what, you, what we have to do is use our God-given imagination and go to a Middle Eastern town. This is a border town. 
This is in between Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And there's tension between the two with, with Samaria. They don't like them very much. There's this tension there, tension at the borders, tension in their interchanges together when they would get together. And Jesus loved Galilee because it's rolling hills and it's on the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Samaria, a little bit dry, a little arid, a little bit of a depressed area, and they have this tension going on. So as Jesus comes to this, this border town uh, and he's passing through this. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And the deal is that there's a long way to Jerusalem. And then there's a shortcut. And the long way doesn't go through Samaria, but the shortcut goes through Samaria. And he chooses the shortcut. And he says, come on, guys, we're going through. And it's not the only time he did this. He went through Samaria several different times. And he comes to this local town. And outside of this town, as he comes in, there's these 10 guys standing out there on the edge of town. They're all diseased. They're all lepers. They're a social outcast, and they live on the outskirts of town. They heard Jesus was coming. They'd heard about the miracles everybody had of Jesus, his teachings, his compassion that he had, and the power that he had to, to heal people, to speak healing into their life. So when they see Jesus approaching, the Scripture tells us that they begin to raise their voices very loud and say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This is a prayer that I believe God loves to respond to. It's a confession of, hey, I'm a mess. I can't fix this. I've tried. I'm beyond helping myself here. Please have mercy. You have the capacity and the ability and the power to do something, and I'm asking you, have mercy on me. The Bible tells us that God, in fact, is a God of mercy. It's the way that he is described. He delights in mercy. He delights in showing mercy. He delights when we show mercy because we're being like him. Luke points out that these guys all stood at a distance from Jesus. And the fact is they had to because they were lepers. These are the kind of people that, that sometimes we encounter in life that's either easy to overlook or maybe we intentionally avoid looking at them or making eye contact with them because it's uncomfortable. We're not really sure what we can do about this situation. So let's pause for a minute, and I want you to, in your imagination, now look at these guys. See them? There's 10 of them lined up. They're disheveled. Their hair is matted. They probably haven't had a bath in a long time. They're covered with sores, nasty sores all over their body, maybe some bandages that are pretty nasty themselves. Disfigured, hollow, empty, you can see the pain etched in their faces. Their eyes look like they're almost already dead. And they're alone out there. The Bible tells us two very important things about these ten men. First of all, they were lepers, and secondly, they were Samaritans. Just look at this for just a moment. We don't really hear much about leprosy anymore because it's mostly eradicated from the world. I think that there's 100 cases, around 100 cases a year uh, in America. And they're all in Georgia, by the way. No, not really. Um, just, just checking, just checking. Okay, we're, we're together. Uh, about 100 throughout the, the nation, and then about 200,000 uh, in the world. But today it's called Hansen's disease. It's uh, treatable today. It's curable. So it's not a death sentence anymore. But in Jesus' day, 
It was a death sentence. It was a horrible way to go. Uh, leprosy is an infectious disease. It's caused by a slow-growing type of bacteria. And what happens is it attacks the nerves and actually begins to kill the peripheral nerves of the body, not in the brain or the spinal column, but in the outside parts of the body, it begins to affect the nerves. When the nerves aren't working, it's easy to burn yourself, to cut yourself, not even know it. And then infection sets in. So it's very characteristic that people that had leprosy would become disfigured as the, as the disease would begin to progress. They would lose limbs. They would lose parts of their body, literally, as, as infection would set in. And it was a, a horrible way, a horrible existence. In biblical times, there, there were no treatments. It was not curable. It was a death sentence. It was greatly feared. It was considered at that time to be highly contagious. We know now it's not that highly contagious, although it can be. But in that day, it was a death sentence. And, and here's what happened when a person was diagnosed with leprosy. First thing, they had to leave their home. They'd be taken from their family, taken from their home, and they would live together with other sufferers outside of town on the outskirts of the city. They'd have to scavenge for food. They were forbidden of having any contact with people that, ha that did not have the disease. They could not go to the market. They were forbidden to take place, to take part in worship. In, in fact, they were given a bell, and they were told, if anyone comes near you, Here's what you do. You ring that bell and you shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. And if you don't, we will take stones and stone you. And so oftentimes what happened when people would see lepers, just see them off in a distance, they would pick up, pick up stones and begin to throw at them just like you would throw at a dog, a rabid dog, to get, to get it to go away. Go away. Get out of here. And so... They, their life was, was painful, it was covered with shame, and their identity was to shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Since leprosy is a slow-developing disease, they probably had this condition for many, many years. And I, I just want us to kind of get into this a moment and see what the, the peril of these men's life were like. They sat in the midst of suffering and watched life go by as they suffered. They remembered perhaps the good times way back when, and they saw people living their life and having a good time, and they just desperately hoped that somehow something would change and their life would be restored, or if nothing else, at least ended. Not only that, the Bible tells us that they were Samaritans. Give you a little background real quickly on this. The Jews hated the, the Samaritans because in the past, Samaria who had, had been a part of the Jewish nation, nation, but when they were invaded by foreigners, uh, people that were not Jews, the Samaritans decided to intermarry with them and to make peace with them in that way. So the rest of the Jews in Judea and Galilee did not look at them as pure Jews. They looked down upon them as basically as traitors and turncoats turning away from um, the, the nation in purity. So these guys are Samaritans. They're outcast in that sense. They're diseased, so they don't have a lot going for them. They've already got like two strikes against them. And it's a pretty, pretty sad picture of them there in that decaying flesh in that situation. So when Jesus comes in to town, what did they do? Well, they did the same thing we would do. They, they did the same things we do when we're hurting, we're in pain, we're in difficulty, we can't fix things. They cried out for mercy. And they said, Jesus, Master, Lord, have mercy upon us. Help us in this situation. 
And Jesus seems to delight in responding. Instead of turning away like most of the people did in that day and the religious scribes would do and the Pharisees, he doesn't reject them. He doesn't turn away from them. He doesn't say, get out of here, you guys, you know, and throw a stone at him or anything. He doesn't withdraw from them or look away from them. Instead, he makes eye contact with them and he proclaims healing over them. It's not what you would expect from the religious crowd of the day, but Jesus likes to rock the boat, doesn't he? He likes to go against the norm, and so he speaks life and healing into these guys. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's another encounter Jesus had with a Pharisee one day, and the guy came up to Jesus or approached Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus immediately responded, I am willing. And then he did something that shocked everybody. He went over to the guy, he touched him. He touched him. This man had probably not had anyone even get near him, much less touch him in years. And Jesus breaks all the norms. This is completely forbidden. And what he does is he takes healing into the sickness. He takes light into the dark. And he lets let's everybody know, I'm not afraid of this. I'm bringing healing into this. And he steps and he heals that, that guy. In this case, he doesn't touch them. He just says, hey, guys, go show yourself to the priest, which was one of the things that would happen when someone was healed uh, or maybe got better from leprosy. They would show themselves, be tested, you know, and then they would be free to go. And what the scripture says in verse 14 is that it came about that as they were going, notice this, as they were going, they were, they were cleansed. Now, this is not the way that miracles many times take place in the scripture. Many times is that Jesus touches the person or, you know, speaks a word and boom, they're healed instantaneously right there. But it doesn't always happen that way. This healing takes place in the midst of their response to Jesus and they're, they're obeying what he told them to do. They're responding to uh, his word in faith. They reminded me in 2 Kings is another guy who was a leper in the Old Testament. His name was Naam. And he was Naaman. He was a, a captain in the army. And he encountered the prophet Elisha. And Elisha told him, he says, listen, here's what you do. Go down to the Jordan River and dip yourself into the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman, who was an official, he was a kid, he was ticked off, just to be, you know, clear. And he was mumbling, you know, like <laughs> You know, if he'd asked me to do something great or big, I, I could get it. But instead, he's told me to go down to this river, this muddy Jordan River, and dip into this nasty river. We've got better rivers back home. But he's told me to do this, and his, his uh, assistant, basically a servant, says, just go ahead and do it. What's it going to hurt? So he goes down to the river, and he starts dipping and dipping. You know, one dip, nothing. Two dips, nothing. Three dips, nothing. He's probably going, this is not working. And again, his servant says, listen, just go through with it. What's it going to hurt? And he continues to obey. And somewhere in the midst of that, he was healed. And I love what the Bible says about him. It says that his skin uh, became like a child's skin. Uh, his, his skin was as soft as a baby's butt, I guess is the old way the saying used to go. It's just as soft as it could be. And he was completely restored in the midst of obeying what the Lord had said to him. There was a time when God told the people of Israel to go into Jordan, the promised land. And they got down to the, to, or excuse me, cross into the promised land and crossed the Jordan River. And they come down to the Jordan River and it's flooding. And they go, we, we can't get over there. Hey, remember what you did with the Red Sea? You just stopped the Red Sea? You know, somebody lift up a staff, stop the Red Sea, stop the Jordan River, and we'll cross over. And the Lord says, step out. 
And it wasn't until they began to step down into the river, the flooding river, that God stopped the flow. And so in, in these two cases, there was obedience of responding in faith to what God had said to these people. Now, what had happened if they hadn't stepped? I guess they would have just died on the, on the river, uh, river's bank. In this case, with these, these 10 men, what if they had said, well, nothing's happening. We'll go show ourselves to the priest when we see something happen. And I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us, but my impression, my conclusion is they would still be standing there. It was as they went, as they began to move and respond to the word of God, of Jesus, that they began to experience the power of Jesus in their life. They had to respond in faith. In other words, they were invited to participate in faith with what God was doing. Now, let's be clear. They could not heal themselves. They, they, they could go to the priest anytime they wanted to, and they wouldn't have been healed. They're responding in faith to the promise of Jesus, to the word of Jesus, to what he has said to them. And as they respond, healing begins to come. As they're getting healed, something dramatic happens. It's a pivotal moment at this moment. When they look and they begin to realize that they're, they're getting healed, 90% of them at that moment take off to celebrate, to enjoy the blessing. But one guy, 10%, goes back to find Jesus and say, thank you. Now, where did the nine go? I think they went on to live their lives, uh, to, to celebrate. To, to, I'm, I'm healed. I'm going to go live my life now and enjoy my life to make up for lost time. I can only imagine that these guys had been thinking about what they would do. Maybe they sat around the campfire and said, you know, if I ever get healed, I'm going to go get that donkey back they took away from me. You know, or I'm going to go back and see my family, or I'm going to go back and get my job back. And, and they, they had these dreams of what they would do in their life. They dreamed about these things and hoped for it and watched others enjoy life. And maybe they thought, finally blessed, I'm going to live my best life now. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to do my thing because the healing has come. And, and honestly, I mean, who can blame them? You know, I mean, you look at it and you go, yeah, of course. But the problem is this. Their focus is on the gift. Yeah. And not the giver. Their focus is on the blessing that they are now free to enjoy, but not on the blessor, the one who gave them that blessing. And this is where it gets personal for us. It gets a little bit uncomfortable. It takes us back to that warning in, in Deuteronomy that after God has blessed me and given me so many, many things, be careful. Let's I forget that I focus on the blessing. I think, hey, look what I have done. And depart from that. And many times when we do receive the blessings that we get in life, we just quickly move on and forget. I was thinking about this, just sitting with it the other day, and I, I thought, you know, it's kind of like life. Life, uh, when you're young, life just seems like it's going to take forever, you know, to, to get here. But when you get a little older in life, it's like, where'd it go? And you look at the seasons of life, and I can remember uh, being in high school, and I was thinking, I cannot wait to get out of high school and get into college, because that's life, you know? And I got into college, and then I said, I cannot wait to get out of college, Remember? And, you know, you think, I can't, I can't wait to get married. And we get married and we go, man, we can't wait to have kids. And then we get kids and we go, we well, can't wait till these kids get out of diapers <laughs> and, uh, and go to school. 
Well, I can't wait till these kids, we're going to get some peace around here. The kids go to school, and then we go, I can't wait till these kids get out of school. And then, you know, the day's going to come, these kids can't wait till these kids uh, find their, their mate and their life and their career, and they move out, and they're happy, and they're doing great. Can't, can't wait till that day. I can't wait till we retire. And then we go, where'd life go? <laughs> because it passes very, very quickly. And so often, we're living our life looking at the next thing, the next season, the next blessing, instead of just really stopping and go, you know what? God is so good right now. Right now, God has given me so much. God has done so many wonderful things in my life. And it's just good right now, this moment, to look around and see what he is doing, to witness and recount what he has done for my life. We raced through life. The nine guys in the story, I kind of get it, you know? They, they got blessed. They looked at the blessing, and they said, man, I'm out of here. I'm going to live my life. Now, here's a question. Uh, were they grateful? Probably so, yeah, maybe. But they focused on the gift rather than the giver. And they missed out because of that on something very important. If we go on and continue to read in Luke 17, it says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. Now, he was a Samaritan. A little footnote in there that Luke puts there for us. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and praise, give praise to God except for this, this one guy, this foreigner? And, you know, Jesus says something pretty startling there. He's puzzled by that. And he's trying to figure it out himself. But then he says something important. This is, this is I think, critically important to this passage. He says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, I have to wonder, well, what about the other nine? Didn't they get healed too? Some people speculate and say, well, maybe they did, but they lost their healing. You know, Maybe they, the healing didn't stick. Now, here's the problem with that. The truth is we don't know because the Scripture doesn't tell us. And we have to be careful not to make Scripture say what Scripture doesn't say. We don't really know, but what we do know from this passage and the authority of Jesus' words is that this man, this one man, he left this encounter with Jesus with two very important things. First of all, he left with healing because we know it. Jesus proclaimed it right there. But he also left with faith. He left with faith because Jesus proclaimed that he had faith. Your faith has made you well. There's something more about this passage. The Greek word for made you well, that, that saying there, is actually the same word from which we get salvation. Some of your Bibles were translated that way, your faith has saved you. Because salvation in the Bible is more than just a spiritual experience. It's, it's a holistic experience. It's a whole redemptive process that's taking place that blesses us in body, soul, and, and spirit. And so what Jesus is proclaiming is not only has your body been made well, but faith has been activated in your life. There's something deeper than just physical blessings here taking place in this man. This man walked away, not only healed, but he left with a vital new relationship with Jesus of faith. He left with a connection to Jesus. He had praised and worshiped Jesus as God. And gratitude does that in our life. There are several things that are important for gratitude that we need to note. It, it is a spiritual exercise, a practice, a habit 
that opens up a rich new dimension in our own spiritual life. It, it, it's, it's vital for developing that in our life. And spiritual depth doesn't really take place without it in our life as Christians. For one, gratitude gives glory to God. It glorifies God. It gives him the rightful place of acknowledging the fact that God is our creator. He's our blesser. He is our provider. Bible says in James that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shadow due to change. Gratitude recognizes that, that it honors God. What, what it does when we stop and we're grateful and we express that is that it honors God and gives him the rightful place as our source and our provider and the giver of everything that we have. When David wrote Psalm 23, he was reflecting on the goodness and the generosity of God. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I think I've mentioned this before, but the word he uses for Lord is Yahweh, which is the, that, that name that God gives himself that, says, that means I am is the way we translate it. But it actually, there's no restriction upon the tense. It means I was, I am present, and I will be in the future. You don't contain God. He's uncontainable. And not only that, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he begins to pour forth the blessings that God has brought in his life and how he's met so many needs. Yahweh, the creator, who spoke the universe into existence, the sustainer, who holds it all together, the maker of all, the source of everything, who is never exhausted, never runs out, never gets weary, never goes to sleep, never gives up, never. He, Yahweh, is my provider. He is watching over me. He is active in my life. And therefore, he could say, I, I don't have a need that's not going to be met. He is going to provide for me. And gratitude gives God that rightful place, and it honors him in our, in our lives. Secondly, gratitude creates humility in us because it's admitting that we don't have everything ourselves, that we can't do everything ourselves, and it recognizes our needs. It recognizes our limitations. It admits the fact that we are recipients of blessing that we're receivers, if you will. Now, some people have trouble receiving, you know, and when you try to do something for me, you ever encounter somebody, go, no, 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 I can do it myself, I can do it myself, and they just don't want you to do anything for them. They're having a little difficulty with that. But the fact is there's many things we can't do ourselves. We cannot create something out of nothing, and, but God can. And he is active in our life providing for us. So it really strikes at the heart of pride and it's, it's humility. It's a practice of humility when we give gratitude. Third, it strengthens our faith. This one grateful man, this one guy, the 10%, he grew in his faith. And we know that because of what Jesus says. Gratitude opens a whole new dimension and a quality of relationship with the Lord. Uh, note two things here. Uh, someone read this passage or mentioned this passage earlier this morning. The Bible says in Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Now, this, this was penned by David. And these aren't just words. These are words of truth. This is God's truth. And what they're expressing here is that when we express gratitude, when we express thanksgiving, when we stop to praise God, these are keys to experiencing the presence of God in our life, the manifested presence of God. 
the, the fact is, the Bible teaches us, God is everywhere all the time, right? But we don't always experience him. And when we stop to express praise, which is was recognizing who God is, and thanksgiving, which is recognizing what God has done, what this passage is indicating is that we begin to move into experiencing the presence of God. Somebody used to call it God's address. The second thing is that gratitude is a vital part of a fruitful prayer life. In Philippians 4, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your prayers and your supplication, your request before God, be mixed and mingled with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, he says. And the peace of God, which surpasses our understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying there is as we mix thanksgiving with our prayer request, it, it's fruitful in our prayer life. It's a huge faith booster when we're not just saying, Lord, give me, give me, give me, do this, do that. But we say, Lord, you've been so faithful in doing this and this. And I praise you for that. I thank you for that. And now I bring this need to you. Today, it's mingled with faith. It actually increases our faith and, and indicates that it makes our prayer lives more fruitful. Learning to be grateful, I don't think it's rocket science. You know, I can't, I can't give you 25 things to, to be grateful because it's not really hard. It's really a matter of the heart and a matter of habit. It's a matter of our heart because it's something that we develop. Uh, I heard someone recently, I read recently where someone called uh, the process of this holy noticing you ever heard that phrase, holy noticing? It's noticing the holy things that are taking place around us. Stopping to notice what God is doing, the works of God. To, to be, I, I even hesitant, hesitant to use this word, but being mindful, okay? Um, being aware of what God has done and is doing around us right now. So it's a, it's a practice in a matter of our heart of stopping to notice. I encourage you to do it. Just go out today and notice. Look for, scout, recon, do a holy recon, and look to see what the Lord is doing around you. Secondly, it's a matter of habit because it's intentional. It has to be a decision and something intentional. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, the, the feasts and festivals and holy days that Israel used to have. Well, the point was not just to point to the holiday, but the point was to point to him, to him. And it was an intentional thing that they did. It developed a rhythm or a pattern or a practice of intentionally pausing and shifting our attention to the Lord. Some people practice uh, gratitude by starting each day, first thing in the morning before they get out of bed, just calling to the Lord, Lord, here's some things I'm thankful for this day. I'm very thankful for, or also ending the day, um, calling back over the day, Lord, thank you for this and this and this that took place today. Um, but do you know what the majority of Americans do first thing in the morning and last thing at night? Check our phones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I've done it too. I just many times I've done Hey, just check. And you know what? When I check my phone first thing in the morning to see what the weather is and then the news and then check the emails you know, it really is not a great way to start the day. It doesn't really boost my faith and go, wow, Lord, this is great. And it's like, man, really? All this is going on? So instead of that, let me, you know, what if we just put our cell phones down and we spend a little bit of time thanking the Lord in the morning and the evenings? Some people do something really radical. 
not really. They just journal it. They just write it out. Lord, thank you for this blessing. Thank you for this. Or express it to other people. Um, and we haven't even touched on the subject of what medical, science, psychological fields today say about the huge mental and emotional, physical benefits of people who practice gratitude. You know, because that's kind of self-help stuff. It's a benefit, but it's real. It's huge, in fact. It's very big. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry to say this in my Mayberry mind once again. I don't know if we'll ever go back to Mayberry Thanksgivings. Doggone it. I sure did enjoy those. But what's more important is that we are a people of gratitude, that we practice it as a grace in our life. We practice it as a rhythm of our life, a mindset, and that we take note of what the Lord has done and we express that to him and we express it to others, that we incorporate that into our, our life in all ways. Um, I want to end with this because it's really just a perfect transition uh, into what we do next in our worship services. We end each Sunday with communion or the Lord's Supper. And um, I, some of you probably know this, but we call it the Lord's Supper communion. But in many, many traditions in other churches and throughout church history, uh, it's, it has a very religious name, uh, the Eucharist. And what that simply means, it comes from the Greek and the Latin and it means to give thanks. It's not only commemorating uh, the Lord's death, but it's remembering what he did and how he blesses us because of it, and we're grateful. We're grateful that he forgives our sins, and we're reminded of that. We're, we're grateful that he is with us, and we're reminded of that. We're grateful that, that he loved us this much. And so it is a time that we, we pause, not only confess sin, and we encourage, you know, if there have been things that have happened in our life this week or as there are things that have happened, disappointments and sins or failures, that we acknowledge those to God and ask for his forgiveness. But we're also thankful that he indeed does and that he hasn't given up on us and doesn't give up on us, but he's with us and he sustains us. So we're remembering what he has done, that we're forgiven, made his people, and dwelt by him and filled with him. Ephesians 1 verse 3 reminds us that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. We have a lot to be thankful for, not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm with him, our walk with him. So we want to pause today. We're going to transition now into our time of communion. And uh, this is the time of our service where we just stop. And we pause for a few moments to come to the table. Uh, I want to remind you that everyone is invited to a very...